Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Tullian Chavidian. He's the grandson of Billy Graham. He's written several award-winning books, been a celebrated preacher and pastor. He's been quite forthright in recent years that he's one that doesn't just preach grace, but needs it, and has talked and written about his own personal struggles. He came on today to talk about the memory and legacy of his grandfather, recently deceased, the Reverend Billy Graham. I give you Tully and Chavidian. Tully, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Hey, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sure, I mean, you're, the country feels a, a loss with your grandfather Billy Graham's passing. And, and, but, you know, I can't imagine, I, I think sometimes with public figures, we forget that, you know, that, that, that there's a more intimate loss there. So I'm sorry for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, a whirlwind the last 24 hours. Um, you know, it's, it's both bitter and sweet. Uh, on the one hand, you don't have a whole lot of privacy to grieve uh, without being bombarded and, um, you know, without so much attention being given to the death of your loved one. And on the other hand, it was super sweet to be able to watch on TV for the most part all day yesterday, the amazing tributes that people from all over the world were paying to him. And it really caused me once again to be extremely grateful for the heritage that God has given me. I didn't ask for, nor did I earn uh, this family that God has given me. And so uh, I'm extremely grateful. And uh, it's been a, you know, it's it's been a real surreal kind of experience, but uh, we're gearing up for the funeral next week. And uh, we had the opportunity to pay tribute to him uh, in a variety of different ways and watching the public react to his death in such an endearing way has been, uh, it's been really, really emotional for us. So I appreciate your condolences. And um, this was something that of course was anticipated. He was 99 years old. Uh, But when I got the text yesterday morning that he had died yesterday morning, I was still in shock. It was, my sister said it best to me yesterday on the phone. She said, I've never experienced anticipating something that you know is imminent. And yet at the same time, when it happens, you're still in shock. And I think she put it well. And and he, you know, it's interesting because I think there's a sense that he might have been the last sort of widely publicly respected evangelical Hmm. in America. Yeah. I mean, I, not that there aren't respectable evangelicals in America. I don't, I don't mean to imply that, but widely respected. You know, outside, I mean, people of all denominational stripes tended to regard him, by and large, very respectfully. And even people that were not people of faith yeah. tended to hold him in high regard. I mean, I wonder, why, why do you think, why is evangelicalism, why, is it, why are those figures so rare now? You know, that's a good question. I think in the truest sense, an evangelical is known for two things. Number one, uh, as a declarer of good news. That's what evangel means, good news, a deliverer of good news, a proclaimer of good news. Uh, and so at its best, evangelicalism has produced good news specialists. And at the same time, my granddad, uh, back in the you know 50s, was trying to forge a middle ground. Uh, he recognized on the one hand that the theological conservatives had it right, 
when it came to their view of the Bible and those sorts of things, but they had it wrong when it came to cultural engagement, uh, that they were more separatistic. And yet at the same time, he recognized that the, you know, the sort of the people on the left or the more liberal leaning uh, branches of the Christian church, they had it wrong when it came to uh, their understanding of the Bible and doctrine and theology and that sort of thing. But they had it right when it came to wanting to engage the culture. And so he really tried to forge this middle ground. And when you're trying to forge a middle ground, you by nature become, if you are not already, you by nature become a unifier, a bridge builder. And I think over the years, there have been so many so many splinters that have happened um, and so many uh, debates and um, that it has really kind of, um, you know, I think he, I, he's the last of his kind in a variety of different ways. But when I look out at evangelicalism today, I see uh, lots of different uh, groups, lots of different tribes, uh, a lot of people who are not unified uh, in the biggest sense of the word, but in also some of the smaller senses. I mean, you know, I heard a story the other day of uh, one pastor of a particular Baptist denomination refusing to shake hands with another pastor of a particular Baptist denomination in America because they their denominations disagree on this, that, or the other. And, um, you know, that's just something that was completely foreign to my granddad. He he really sought to build bridges and tried to bring people together. And I think that's what uh, people on the outside respected him so much for trying to do. And he learned a lesson probably from his relationship with R Richard Nixon mm. that taught him the dangers of partisan politics and clergy being used and manipulated. It seems like when he learned that lesson, there was almost a parallel trajectory or, or an opposite directory, as he got less partisan and became in some ways a chaplain to the nation in some ways, mm. and, in addition to an evangelist, evangelicalism got more partisan. Yeah, that's <laughs> it got more. It, yeah. got, it got more tribal as he got less tribal. Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. I haven't thought about that, but that's true. And he would say that he was far too political in his earlier years of ministry. And I think the whole ordeal with Richard Nixon opened his eyes to the fact that, you know, politicians tend to use prominent figures of faith and religious leaders for their own political ends. And uh, he loved Richard Nixon. He said to me one time that Richard Nixon was probably the smartest person he had ever met. But at the same time, he felt betrayed and duped by Nixon because the Nixon that eventually emerged was a very different Nixon than the Nixon that he portrayed to my granddad when they were in private. And so uh, I think that did open his eyes. I think that was a I think that was a severe mercy for my granddad uh, because it sort of got him away from any kind of partisan politics. From that point forward, he refused to endorse any political candidates for office. Uh, he was chastised by both the left and the right for not championing their particular agendas, political or otherwise. Um, and I think one of the reasons is because he was reoriented in those days back to his primary calling as an evangelist and recognize uh, that if he comes down on the side of one particular political candidate or the other, he is going to automatically ostracize himself from a whole grouping or mass of people that need to hear the gospel. And so he had his private political opinions. He rarely shared them even with us in private. He kept that to himself. But as far as his 
you know, public ministry goes, he steered clear from politics uh, for, you know, the last 40 years of his ministry, which I think uh, he would say was a wise move. And I would agree with him. It's interesting. I was reading just yesterday an account where Carl Bart and he had met in mm-hmm. 1960 and Marcus Bart, Carl's son, introduced the two of them. And Bart l- loved your grandfather. He said he's a jolly good fellow with whom one can talk easily and openly. One has the impression that he is even capable of listening, <laughs> which is not always the case with such trumpeters of the gospel. And, and two weeks later, he went to one of your grandfather's crusades and came away less enthused. And he actually said something like that he almost seemed to make the gospel law or, or, or to create this sort, sort of sense of urgency that seemed to confuse the law and the gospel. Hmm. No, you're somebody has, who has been incredibly influential in the kind of reviving of, of, the, of the centrality of the law gospel distinction in the Bible and our preaching our life. Do, do you think, I mean, I, I, my sense is Bart, first off, he, he wasn't around a lot of American evangelicals evangelicals so there's a little bit of a translation mm-hmm. problem but but i mean did you and and your grandfather ever talk about the law gospel stuff and, and your own theological journey no we didn't actually talk a whole lot of theology when we were together i think one of the things that my granddad readily admitted uh is that he was not a theologian he was not a scholar he always surrounded himself with scholars and theologians because he recognized how much he needed them. Uh, my grandmother was probably his chief theological consultant. She was a bona fide historian and, and theologian in her own right. Um, but, you know, we didn't really talk theology in any real deep, detailed sense. Uh, most of our conversations were about uh, life, were about ministry, were about family. I used to spend most of my time asking him questions about different experiences experiences he's had or different people that he's met. Um, you know, he and my grandmother would joke back and forth because she was born and raised Presbyterian. And although he was born Presbyterian, he became a Baptist uh, soon after he was converted. And so they would sort of go back and forth and have their sort of fun debates. But my grandfather knew that to, to debate my grandmother was to uh, lose. <laughs> uh, so he didn't do that much, but it was all done in good fun. And uh, I don't know, you know, when I hear my grandfather preach or when I have heard him preach, um, I never really evaluated what he was saying from a law gospel perspective. I saw him fulfilling his call as an evangelist, which was uh, primarily to simply say, um, God loves sinners and sent Jesus to die for sinners uh, come to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Like that's all he wanted to say to anybody who would listen. Um, and so I think it's worthwhile to sort of, uh, parse out things he said either in his sermons or his books. And it can be some good conversation, maybe even some good debate about his theological positions, whether they were conscious or unconscious. Uh, but I think that in and of itself misses the greater point. And that is that God called him to deliver the good news of the gospel to the world. And he faithfully carried out that calling, especially in light of all of his success, all of his achievements, all of the adulation he received, all of the fame. 
to carry out his calling as faithfully as he did without ever getting distracted. There was never any moral, financial, or sexual scandal that he was guilty of. I mean, he was a faithful, devoted husband, father, grandfather, great-grandfather. I am stunned and continue to be stunned, having experienced just a small percentage of the kind of success he experienced for decades um, and the kinds of challenges and temptations and pride that so easily accompanies success that I myself experienced. And to see how humble and faithful he stayed for over 60 years of world-famous frontline global ministry is just stunning to me. It's it's miraculous. I remember asking him one time, Daddy Bill, how have you stayed so humble in light of all of your accomplishments and in light of all of your success? And, you know, of course, he hated the fact that I even referred to him as a humble person because he knew himself to be the chief mm. of sinners and he did not think he was humble at all. Um, but he looked at me kind of puzzled and I remember him saying, I'll never forget this, I remember him saying, uh, it's hard to be proud when you begin every day with God. And it was just his simple way of saying, you know, when you wake up in the morning and the first person you meet is God, whether it be by prayer or reading the Bible or, or some combination of both, he said, it's just hard to go throughout the day when you live, you know, a coram deo before the face of God to believe your own press. And, um, he also had an amazing wife who, not only loved him and supported him, but kept him humble. And he also had an amazing team of friends around him, um, guys that he knew since high school, his lifelong friends that made up the core of his team. He once and once said, Lord, if you keep if you keep Billy anointed, I'll keep him humble. And mm. he just had a, you know, he was just surrounded by good people. God protected him in some amazing ways. And so um, I think a theological discussion about my granddad's convictions is fun to have. And being a theologian myself, I enjoy having those kinds of conversations. Mm. But, um, but I think ultimately, uh, those conversations can be a distraction from the primary thing he was called to do and the faithful way in which he carried out that calling. Have you seen the Netflix show, The Crown? No, but everybody's told me about it. <laughs> uh, the second season, there's this, he, your grandfather was portrayed by Paul Sparks. Right. Of some renown. And man, I mean, what a moving portrayal of your grandfather. Mm. And these interactions with the queen, it, it, it was sort of faith on faith. I mean, it, it, two genuine, sincere people. It's just beautiful. I mean, it's very moving. I mean, that he he is her kind of confidant. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and and her in the sort of Church of England kind of more staid context. And she just she she founded him a real uh, counselor and confidant and friend. I mean, it seems yeah. like a lot of people in in power found him easy to be around. And I, I read something too that he never. It was I think Jonathan Merritt wrote something for the New York Times. They said he never sought them out. They always sought him out. Yeah. That's true. That is absolutely true. He befriended. Well, that would be said of some evangelical leaders today. Yeah, no, never. they never. <laughs> no, I mean he. Um, you know, he uh, was a confidant, counselor, and friend to every president since Harry Truman, which is amazing to me. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And each and every time they sought him out, um, he was easy to be around because he genuinely loved people. Um, 
he he knew that he was no more or less important than anybody else. And so he was easy to be around because he was a humble person who uh, was really there to serve and there to help. And he had this global perspective on things, and he knew how to distill some of the perennial questions down to some real basics. And so, for instance, you know, the night before, uh, you know, Bush Sr. had to decide whether or not to go to war. Uh, in Iraq, you know, he flew my granddad up to the White House for a time of prayer because he really needed my granddad by his side. Um, of course, you know, George Bush Jr., uh, immediately following the uh, September 11, 2001 attacks, called my granddad and asked if he would please come, you know, to address the nation at the National Cathedral during that memorial service. Uh, Bill Clinton asked him to come to Oklahoma City immediately following the Oklahoma City bombings. I mean, he was always there in times of crisis for our nation. And he had this remarkable way of uh, saying what a lot of people may not even agree with because our country is made up of, you know, so many different kinds of people of different faiths or of no faith at all. Um, but he was able to bring it back to the basic idea that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him, Augustine's old quote. And, um, and so people found him easy to be around because he was humble, because he was friendly, because he cared, because he loved them. Uh, he was a genuine, real guy. I was on a talk show last night and I was telling the different people on the panel uh, that what the public saw from him, his humility, his faithfulness, is exactly what we saw behind closed doors and what I've seen my entire life from him. He was literally no different sitting in a, you know, eating dinner around the kitchen table as he was behind the pulpit. He was exactly the same guy. His integrity, uh, his humility, uh, his faithfulness, uh, his simplicity, all of those things which are so greatly appreciated by all of humanity when we encounter it. Those things are so attractive. Um, and so the world was attracted to him for those reasons. Whether they agreed with his uh, Christianity or not, they were attracted to him as a person. Yeah, it's almost like how people are responding to Pope Francis now. Yeah. There's a, there's a similar thing that it, it, it You're seems right. that regardless of their their where he's at where people are at with his particular convictions there's something he's got a charism and your grandfather had that there was just this kind of what does paul call it the aroma of christ yeah um, that's absolutely true just and you're right so he could have um you know he he wanted uh catholics and calvinists and pentecostals and non-denominational and baptists and you name it i mean he wanted all of them uh, to be, you know, connected in the greater cause of the gospel on those areas where they could agree. And on those areas where they could not agree, uh, he was, you know, fine with um, disagreement. Of course, he had his deeply held convictions, but that never got in the way of him loving someone else. It was amazing that he was able to love with such sincerity people with whom he sincerely disagreed with. And I think that was uh, just a model of civility, of both public and private civility, that in many cases is missing 
today from the public square. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You know, I was listening to a podcast discussion. It was like Bill Crystal's podcast, Conversations. He was talking with the editor of a commentary magazine about films. And John Podorovitz, I think his name is. And he was saying that in the 70s, everyone was going to the movies, right? Mm-hmm. And there was this shared. So he talked about this line from Marathon Man where, you know, this horrible scene where, where uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier is drilling into Dustin Hoffman's mouth or something. And he's trying to get a confession. He says, is it safe there? Is it safe? And he said, everybody within a year knew the line, is it safe? Whether or not they saw the film. And he was talking about how today there's not things like that. There's not a thing that most people will watch just because other people are watching it, even mm. if it does have a big point. I'm wondering how much of your grandfather's model of evangelism connected, at least in the United States, because there was a shared public. We only had a few channels. Yeah. There were still, you know, people read the same papers. People, there was a, there was a common somewhat you know there's always diversity and things like that but there's a common kind of frame of reference and he could he could speak to the nation i I wonder in 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 a sort of as as we get more sorted and you know there's Mm. self-sorting and social media and the internet it seems i mean is is that kind of ministry possible anymore like where 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 a person can have a wide voice yeah, no, like I, I, you know, I've asked myself that question and thought about that question many times. I, you know, in the, in the modern world, uh, due to the rise of social media and cable television and all of the various technologies that we are now so accustomed to, in the modern world, everybody's a little bit famous and no one's really famous, you know? And, um, and I think, and I'm, I'm generalizing cheerfully when I say that, but, um, I think when he was coming onto the scene, it was a perfect storm because uh, TV was relatively new. There were only a couple of channels. Uh, You didn't have a thousand channels to choose from. You basically had three. Uh, Everyone was reading the newspapers. Um, And, you know, when the Associated Press picked something up, I mean, it was in every newspaper in the country. 
and the famous story of William Randolph Hearst, uh, the great media mogul who pretty much operated most of the papers in the country at that time, when he sent word to Puff Graham after the 1949 Los Angeles crusade, uh, my granddad rose to literally international fame overnight uh, because of that one media outlet, the newspaper. And he was a real pioneer. In this sense, he was a reformer, much like Martin Luther was, because he he utilized the media that was available to him at that time. So much like the printing press was used to get the gospel out far and wide in Luther's day, uh, the modern-day printing press of newspaper, radio, and television was harnessed by my granddad right at the outset. And it wasn't so much that he went out seeking it as much as it came to him. And he saw it as a real opportunity to get the gospel out as far and wide as he possibly could. And so, yeah, I, in light of all of that, um, you know, someone was saying yesterday, and it was a good commentary, that uh, the world in which my granddad uh, was not only produced, but the world in which he occupied uh, has severely changed and is not the same world. Um, and yet at the same time, he never changed. He remained the same. So I just, you know, I don't think you think of some of the more well-known, you know, uh, preachers or pastors that have the largest platform these days, whether it be a Rick Warren or a Joel Osteen or, you know, someone like that with a really big church or, you know, sold a lot of books or whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, none of those people would even claim to be either the next Billy Graham or have the same kind of influence as you know, my granddad or whatever the case may be. And I think they're right. Um, I think that uh, he is one of a kind. And the question that has been looming for the last two decades as he's gotten older is who is the next Billy Graham? And of course, the only answer is there is none <laughs> uh, for a variety of re different reasons, um, you know, both in terms of God's call uh, and in terms of the times in which my granddad was sort of birthed and formed and did ministry in. You, you're coming out of what has to be the roughest patch of your life. Yeah. I mean, you've written about it, talked about it. I mean, you, you lost a marriage, lost a church, and, and, and have been pretty honest and upfront about your own sin and brokenness in the midst of that. I wonder, were there words of advice or wisdom he had for you during that time? I mean, how, how, was he, how did he respond to you in your own personal crisis? Uh, well, you know, in, in terms of this most recent, you know, three years ago, sort of cataclysmic explosion of my own personal and public life, um, he was by that point pretty much out of commission. I mean, he hasn't really left the house for four to five years. Um, and so he was fading at that time. And, um, so there wasn't a whole lot. The last time I went to see him, uh, my wife and I were there a little over a year ago. And, you know, he just sort of sat there and held our hands and squeezed our hands. And he knew we were there, but he couldn't really interact. Um, everything he needed to say, you could see in his eyes uh, and in the squeeze of his hand, um, which was the same thing he has always said, which is, I, I love you. And nothing will ever change that. 
I never, ever, ever felt any pressure from him at any point to be something uh, better than I was or to make sure I watch my P's and Q's because I carry the family name. Or There was nothing like that. There was no uh, moral pressure in that regard because of who he was. I never felt that. Um, and he has helped me in a variety of different ways over the years through different, different difficult times and rough patches, uh, whether it be the decisions that I had to make to pastor certain churches or uh, navigate certain waters uh, in terms of ministry or different leadership personalities or whatever. So he has been and was a confidant and counselor to me, and I sought his wisdom especially when it came to those things. And it was always consistent. Uh, he always pointed me back to the cross. He always reminded me of how much he loved me, uh, how uh, supportive he was of me, how encouraged he was by me, and all of those things. And so even though he couldn't say those things the last time that I saw him, uh, because he was pretty much reduced to being unable to speak, um, I could see it in his eyes. It was no different. And, uh, you know, there's this one story, Scott, that I've told a few people only in private, but I'll share it with you. Uh, On the 75th anniversary of Time Magazine, my granddad was invited to the gala in New York City. And everyone who had been on the cover of Time Magazine was invited to go. It was an invitation-only event. My grandmother was sick at that time. And um, so my my uh, grandfather asked my mom, who is his oldest daughter, to be his date uh, to this thing. And uh, this was right in the middle of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. And um, so they had originally seated my granddad at the uh, presidential table at the front. And before it, before the gala actually took place, before the celebration actually took place, uh, Time Magazine called my grandfather and said, listen, we have you currently seated with the president at his table, but we completely understand if you would like to sit at a different table. Meaning, you know, how can we protect your reputation? This guy's really going through it right now. And my granddad's response was, uh, if you take, basically, uh, I'm not coming if you move my seat. And that was his way of simply saying, um, I, will, I, I will stand with my sinful brother in public. I'm not ashamed like, of that. Like Jesus, I'm a friend of sinners. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's – and so he has just exuded and emanated grace and mercy and uh, just forgiveness throughout his entire ministry. And that he embodied that as a person. And so um, he was never – he was never surprised by the scandal of the human condition. He knew his own heart well enough, and therefore he knew the hearts of others well enough to know that uh, we should not be surprised by original sin when it expresses itself. Um, and so he was a non-blinking kind of friend, and uh, he was a non-blinking father, and he was a non-blinking grandfather to me. So. Uh, you know, I thought about him often when I was going through that and sort of losing my life in one sense. And uh, just knowing that he was there, that he loved me, and that he was going to stand with me and by me come hell or high water was a great comfort to me during those times. You know, one thing that strikes me about 
him as a, a public figure. I mean, today in our public discourse, no one ever admits they're wrong. No one gets off their talking points, right? No one changes their mind and says, but he was very forthright when he thought he was wrong about things and when he course corrected and yeah. when it did not hide that and didn't, well, I mean, he was, he was comfortable admitting where he'd been short-sighted or where he had made mistakes. Yeah. And, and, and I, I woe well, that we had more people like that in public life. Yeah. That actually, that, that had the, that, that understood grace enough to realize that they need it. Right. And, and to model this, you, hey, you don't have to stay in your silo forever. Right. That, that you can be fallible and finite and you're going to course correct. And that's part of the journey of life, right? Yeah. And I think one thing, he, I, I never remember him really articulating this theologically, but the way he lived his life demonstrated that he understood that the gospel was not just for people outside the church. It wasn't just for non-Christians, but it was for Christians too that we never, never outgrow our need for the gospel. We never, ever outgrow our need to hear it is finished. That, um, you know, as John Calvin said, uh, we, we will never leave off or we should never leave off the gospel because we never leave off sinning in this life. And my granddad understood that the gospel was not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z of the Christian faith. And what that did is it endowed him with a freedom, like you said, to admit that he was wrong. He understood whether he ever, I can't ever remember having a conversation with him where we talked about the simul simultaneously justified and sinner, uh, that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. I never remember having a theological conversation with him about that, but he embodied that truth uh, by recognizing himself to be both sinner and saint. Uh, he recognized that before God, he was uh, accepted and approved and completely righteous because of Christ's work. And yet he was able to sympathize with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, you know, the, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things I, you know, shouldn't do, I keep doing the things I should do, I don't do. And da, 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 da. I mean, he, he recognized that human struggle of being a sinner still in this life. And so he recognized he never outgrew his need for God's grace. He never outgrew his need for God's forgiveness, which gives people the freedom to admit that they're wrong. Yeah. If you're justified by your faith and not by your ideas right. or identity politics or your tribe, tribal ideology, then you can really actually have, maybe that's the only way you can actually have an open mind if, if you're yes. justified by faith and not by ideas that do identity work. No, you're exactly right. I mean, he, I, I have often said that justification by works is not just a bad theological idea. It's a bad functional one too. And while we may not believe in justification by works theologically, uh, most of us tend to believe in justification by works functionally. And he just understood at a deep existential level how freeing God's justifying grace actually is, which is what perpetuated his humility. It's what kept him humble. He never, ever believed that he had uh, outgrown his need or his desperation uh, or his, um, you know, his dire need for God's grace. That was not something he ever graduated from. And, um, and so, you know, in some ways, uh, while my granddad may be criticized in some corners for not being a meticulous or articulate theologian, 
uh, in terms of what he said or what he wrote. Uh, the way he lived his life <laughs> demonstrated a more sound theology than many sound theologians articulate. And, um, you know, I think that's that's where the rubber really meets the road. Had he ever met Donald Trump? Yeah, Donald Trump. Have I ever met him or had no, he? No, has, has, has he, had he met Trump? Yeah, we actually both met Trump at my granddad's 95th birthday party. I don't know if my granddad had met Trump before then, um, but I know that uh, Trump and Melania, uh, Donald Trump and Melania came to his 95th birthday party back in 2013. Um, I was there uh, along with a host of other people. And so I don't know if they had any interaction before that, but I know they had brief interaction there. And of course, at that point, my granddad was, you know, confined to a wheelchair, and, uh, you know, was not entirely with it his mind was sharp but physically he was not entirely with it so uh, i don't know what he remembers about that uh occasion or that interaction but uh, i know what was that, that like for you when you're there i mean you know here here here, here walks i mean I yeah guess four, four years ago there would have been I mean, people speculate he might run for president, right? I mean, it was close. Yeah, I, yeah there, I remember there had been some talk, you know, about the fact that he might run and all of that stuff. But my interaction with him was brief. I went up and introduced myself to him, and he was very warm, and he was very kind. And uh, we talked for about two or three minutes, and I asked him a couple questions, and he asked me a couple questions. And uh, we were standing there, you know, by, I can't remember if it was by my table or by his table. They were pretty near each other. Um, and I asked him if we could take a picture together and he said, yes. And we took a picture together and I shook his hand and that was it. That's the only time I ever put that on. You need to put that on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) That's the last thing I need. (laughs) It was on Twitter years ago, back in 2013. So if someone really wants to find it, they can probably scroll back through my Twitter account back to 2013 and find it. But you need um, to have your next book. You need to have him endorse like <laughs> number three behind the Bible and art of the deal. is Tullian's book. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, I don't, uh, but you know, my granddad made it a point to be friends with everybody. Uh, he really did try whether they wanted to be friends with him or not. Didn't change the fact that he was open and willing to be friends with anybody. And so, um, you know, whether it was Bush or Clinton or Obama or Trump or, you know, Reagan or Carter or Johnson or Nixon or, you know, whoever, you know, Truman or Kennedy, Ford. I mean, he he really made it a point to be friends with everybody. Um, and I think that's what uh, garnered so much respect for him over the years. Talian, thanks for spending some time talking with me. And again, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. And you know, my my thoughts and prayers are w- with you and, and your family as as you grieve the loss of, of of someone that you know many of us in the country are, are grieving the loss of with you. Well, no, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I, my my head is still spinning. We're still kind of in shock, so I have no idea how coherent this interview was. But I appreciate you inviting me on, and I'm <laughs> I'm always happy to talk about Daddy Bill. That's what we called him, and um, I actually wrote a short. A tribute piece to him that's on my website, featured on my website. Uh, just, I think it's just Tullian.net is the website, but it's featured on the website if someone wants to go and, and read some more personal thoughts and reflections about my granddad. Thanks, man. Thanks, Scott. God bless. Yep. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Tullian for coming on the podcast and sharing his story. You can follow him at Tullian.net. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>